We spend an awful lot of time here talking about the importance of the family. We take time on Father's Day. We take time on Mother's Day to really lean into those things. And been going through the book of Genesis on Wednesdays, which is all about how not to do family. And so from that, we've been able to give a positive picture as well. Because we believe that the family, according to Scripture, is the first line of defense against evil in the world. Malachi chapter 2.15, we've read that verse many times, that God put a portion of the Spirit in every marriage union to produce godly offspring. And so it is unfortunate how minimized the role of motherhood has become. Fatherhood is under attack too, but in a different way. Motherhood is, is viewed almost as, as a cop-out or a soft choice or something people who are lazy do. Isn't that unfortunate? It's really, it's not good and it's also not true. But we believe that mothers are blessings from the Lord. Every one of us knows that. And we do not believe that it is something you do if you can't do anything else. We believe that it is a God-ordained place in the family as a defense against evil, as I said. So thank you, mothers, all of them. And today we're going to take a look at a little-remembered mother in Scripture and her family and learn what makes a godly mother. And there's a whole mess of things we could talk about, but we're going to focus on, on one point in particular. So we're going to be talking today, if you're taking notes, about the family of Zebedee and the mother of James and John, whose name we believe was Salome. And we're going to spend some time gathering information about her, because there really isn't a passage, except for one, that comes out and tells us a lot about her. There's a lot that you can glean from context and from various verses, and I hope this will also be a good lesson for you on how to draw thoughtful conclusions just from the the verses maybe that you'd skip over because it doesn't seem like they've got something very interesting in them. So let's talk about this family, the family of Zebedee. You'll remember when we went through Luke, Jesus recruited a couple sets of brothers. There were a lot of family members in the 12 disciples. And two of these were James and John. Mark 3.17, when it gives the list of all these disciples, it says, James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James to whom Jesus gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. So we have James, we have John, the sons of Zebedee. This is not John the Baptist, of course. This is John who wrote the Gospel of John. This is John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And this is John who wrote Revelation. In the Gospel, he is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You read through your Bible. John, in all of his letters, is very reluctant to name himself was a humility thing. So he's called the elder. He's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this James, there are a couple Jameses in the New Testament as well, because the name James as we have it is the form of the Hebrew name Jacob. So you can imagine why in Israel, in a Jewish culture, the name Jacob was rather prominent as it is today. So which James is this? This is not James, Jesus's brother, who wrote the book of James, nor is this James the son of Alphaeus, who is another James in the Gospels. This is James the son of Zebedee. He's sometimes referred to as James the Greater. And that does not mean better, it means greater as in older. And the other is called James the Less, not because he's less important, but because he was younger than he was. Kind of like minor prophet doesn't mean less important prophet, it just means short prophet. And major prophet means big prophet. So you got these two, James and John. And they were unique among the disciples because they, along with Peter, were the three in Jesus' inner circle. 
Jesus had the multitudes that followed him. He had the 70 that he commissioned to do his work. He had the 12 that were with him all the time. And then he had the three, Peter, James, and John, who got to see the most cool stuff. They were the ones that got to be on the Mount of Transfiguration and watch Jesus become glorious in that moment. They were the ones called to go with him in Gethsemane to pray with him while he was sweating great drops of blood, as it were. So you've got these two, the sons of Zebedee, disciples of Christ, inner disciples of Christ, best friends of Christ. John was traditionally the youngest member of the 12 disciples. And they were called the sons of thunder, which comes from a story in Luke chapter 9. They were going through Samaria, and they were supposed to go and find a hotel in one of the cities of Samaria. And they said, we do not want a bunch of filthy Jews walking through our town and staying in our hotel. So they came out and they said, Lord, would you like us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did and burn this city to the ground? And Jesus said, take it easy, fellas. He gave them the name Sons of Thunder. You're Sons of Zebedee. You're the Sons of Thunder because you're always looking to smite something. Which is interesting because you read through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and what is the phrase he's always referring to the people he's writing to? Beloved, my little children. He writes to them like that, the son of thunder. He was older at that point. But it's interesting to see his personality as it grew and as it developed. And even in church history, we've got some fascinating tradition about John that we have no reason to doubt. One of my favorite stories of his was that there was a, a young man who was being raised up and discipled in the church, and he saw a lot of potential in this guy, and he appointed him out to the pastor of that church and said, you got to make sure you hang on to this guy. And when John came back, that kid had run off and was now running with, I guess, what we'd call a gang today. It was a band of robbers, and he was in charge of them. And John, the son of thunder, but also John, the elder, ran to this, this den where they were hiding and said, I need to speak to this guy because he's walked away from the Lord. And this big, tough armed robber who murdered people and stole their money saw John and ran from him weeping because he couldn't stand to face John the apostle. So God took all that intensity and rechanneled it through the love of Christ into the kind of person that wasn't going to let people go, even tough cases. And their father was a man named Zebedee. And Zebedee is the Hellenized or Greek version of his name. It probably would have been Zebediah. So that's his name. And he was a fisherman. I'm going to read two passages here because they both describe the call of James and John. But remember, we're looking at the details here. And they both describe the kind of fishing business they were into. So starting in Mark chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. It said, when Jesus had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. That's Mark 1, 19 through 20. This now is Luke chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Same story, different version. As for Peter and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. Remember that story where they brought in the fish and they had to get two boats to bring it in? And so also were James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. That is Simon Peter. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. So same story. One version is condensed. One version is expanded. And we learn a little something about the family of Zebedee here. First of all, that they were fishermen. Zebedee was in the boat with them, and so we know that they were fishermen. 
We also know that he was wealthy enough to have hired servants because they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. Jesus called a lot of very poor people. Seems like Zebedee was not one of those. We also know that they had multiple boats because Simon Peter and James and John were partners together and they brought their boats together. And we also know that Peter and Andrew were partners with them. So we get a picture here. that These were not just guys that had a little boat and they would go out, you know, casting and fishing. This was a commercial fishing enterprise that Zebedee ran. And so we can assume from this that the Zebedee family would have been reasonably wealthy and also would have been known. And we're not just making that up. It's not a leap here because there's another passage in John 18 verses 15 through 16. This is when Jesus has been arrested and he's brought into the high priest's house. So listen to this story very carefully. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. John is writing this story. John never names himself. This other disciple is John, okay? Now that disciple, that is John, was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Isn't that an interesting little tidbit that we can skip over in our Good Friday studies? That they go to follow Jesus and Jesus is brought into the high priest's house. Well, they're not getting in there. But it says the high priest knew John. Caiaphas and Annas knew John and they let him in. So John goes in. Then when John goes in, he goes to the lady at the front and says, you can let him in. He's with me. And that was Peter. Isn't that fascinating? We can assume that John had access to the high priest's house. The Zebedees were known even to the priesthood, which raises a whole host of other questions. How were they connected to the priesthood? Were they in on any of that corruption that the priests were in on? How did Zebedee handle it when his friends in the priesthood and the leaders of the nation found out that his sons were disciples of Jesus Christ? So this is how we know that this was not just a fishing enterprise. It seems to have been a very successful and powerful one because Zebedee's son was able just to walk into the high priest's house when they're arresting Jesus Christ. So you get this picture here that these were not poor young men. Maybe that's why they were wanting to torch people. They were used to getting their own way. I don't know. <laughs> so these are... Some of the details that we have here. It gives you a fuller picture, right? We have James and John, but they're not just two guys. They are the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, which means they were well off. They were known in the land. And Jesus called them to be his disciples. It also tells us that they were willing to leave all of that to follow Jesus. This is what happens when you read your Bible and you pay attention to some of those details. You can root out a fuller picture of what's going on. We're going to continue to do exactly that. Because there's one more member of this family, and this is the one we're going to focus on today. Zebedee's wife, the mother of James and John. Matthew 27, verses 55 and 56, tells us this. That many women followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. And they were there at the cross, looking on from afar among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So at the cross, when Jesus is being crucified, James and John's mother was there watching. And it says that she followed Jesus, that she ministered to him. So how we know about this woman, mostly is we examine the lists of the women that followed Jesus. And they all give us a little detail sometimes about each one. So some of this... Is, is tough to know for sure, but we, we can be 
reasonably certain about some of this. For example, in Mark 15, verse 40, it gives us the same list, but instead of the mother of James and John, it says Salome. So we assume that Salome was the name of James and John's mother. And that name, of course, comes from the Hebrew word Shalom, which means, anybody know? Peace. So that was her name. There's also a very, very slim chance that she was Mary's sister, that is, Jesus' mother's sister. And that is the church tradition. This is a verse in John 19, 25, again, where it's giving a list of the names, and it says that the sister of Mary was there. And depending on how you work the grammar in the Greek, it could be referring to her there. I think it's unlikely, but it certainly is possible. So there is the slight possibility that James and John were actually cousins of Jesus Christ. But that raises a whole host of other questions. Jesus was a poor man living in Nazareth. Meanwhile, there's this rich branch of the family over here. So seems unlikely, but it is certainly possible, and you are free to have your own opinion on that, so knock yourself out. But whoever she was, she was one of the women who ministered to Jesus while he was in Galilee, which makes sense as the mother of two of his disciples. I wonder if the brothers were ever teased for that, that, you know, we, we left our families and Peter left his wife, but, you know, you brought your mama with you, <laughs> that she's following along. And this, again, if we believe that John was the youngest of the disciples, because we have John living into the 90s AD, so it's even been speculated that he was as young as 14 or 15, maybe that makes a little more sense. Like, oh yeah, you can go wherever you want. I'll be right over here making sure nothing goes, goes wrong. But it says that she ministered to Christ. She would have fed him, right? We read about Jesus being out all day, ministering to people, healing people, teaching to people. You got to picture Salome coming up in the middle of the day and saying, get, get out of my way. You're going to get your turn. Jesus, you need to eat something. <laughs> well, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. Okay, that's great. You still need to eat something, Jesus. Here you go, right? She would have housed him. I'm sure he, they would have stayed at her house when they were nearby. I'm sure she would have fussed over him and asked him when he was going to find a nice girl and settle down. And I'm sure they would have discussed the kingdom together. And we know this was a sincere commitment. She wasn't just there because of her sons, because she's at the cross watching Jesus. And the only other disciple who was at the cross, do you know who that was? Was John. And we also know that she was at the empty tomb. Mark 16, verse 1 says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. So even in death, she continued her ministry to Jesus. She was going to be one of the three who were going to embalm the body of Jesus. And she became one of the first witnesses of the resurrection when Christ appeared. I wonder how this was, again, perceived by her husband. Because it doesn't tell us anything about Zebedee. It just tells us that his sons were the disciples of Christ, that his wife was traveling with Christ. And we know that he was a rich man, well-known and well-off. I wonder what kind of pressure he got from the other wealthy men in this area. And we can assume also because of this that she would have become very good friends with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And in fact, in John 19, you know this hanging from the cross, Jesus told John to take care of his mother. Do you remember that? It says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And Mary went into John's house from that day on. So you can even picture Salome and Mary growing old together. Isn't that exciting to see how it's all connected when you just take a time to read some of these, these small verses? And these women never wavered. She never had that moment of faith where she ran away from the Lord and wanted to sit at a distance like the other disciples did. 
And so we can obviously assume she was in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. And that when the Holy Spirit came, that she was filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, glorifying God with the other disciples. Jesus turned this entire family upside down, didn't he? They were doing fine. You know, they, they weren't desperate in the streets, possessed with seven demons like Mary Magdalene was. They weren't doing wrong like Levi was, working at the tax collecting table. They were doing just fine, but Jesus showed up and he said, come and follow me. Because Jesus does not just come for desperate people. He also comes for people who are doing just fine and have everything that they need. Sometimes they need Jesus even more so. Jesus said it's harder for a rich person to be saved than a poor person. Which is why when we go out and we minister, sometimes you find that those who have nothing are much more receptive to the gospel. And those who have everything, it takes a long time to work with them. But we still need to take the time because... Jesus did. Amen? Changed the entire destination of this family. And so now that we've got a picture here, you've got the Zebedee family, which is a fishing commercial family. You've got James and John, the sons of thunder. You've got Salome, the woman that ministered to Jesus, the woman who would be there at his, at his crucifixion and his resurrection. Let's look at our Bibles in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 23. This is the fullest story we get of Salome. And it's kind of a funny story. <laughs> In verse 20 it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. I love this story because this is such a mom thing to do, isn't it? You got a picture, maybe they're, they're sitting around the dinner table. So how are things going with Jesus? Oh, it's great. He's going to establish a kingdom. He's the Messiah. That's great. So, and, and I would assume that there's going to be a place for you there because you're one of his closest disciples. Well, well Jesus, he doesn't really talk about it that way. He, he teaches us that I guess we're supposed to be servants if we want to be the, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And she says, listen, boys, your father is a very successful man. He knows all about how to get ahead. And you don't get anything just by sitting and waiting for it. You need to go up to him and ask him. Because if nobody else, has Peter been asking? No, Peter hasn't asked. What about Andrew? Oh, he hasn't asked. Well, then you should, you should go and tell him. You should ask. Well, I, I don't think that's the right. You know what? I'll do it for you. Would you like me to come? And maybe she drags her boys for Jesus, I'd like to talk to you for a minute. I, I, I'd like to ask you something. He goes, okay, what is that? I have two fine young boys. And I think that they would be excellent at your right hand and at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus, you have no idea what you're asking. He says, are you going to drink the cup that I'm going to have to drink? And she elbows him, go on, tell him. Yes, yes, we are able to drink the cup. Got kind of a feisty personality in this family. You can see that entrepreneurial spirit there a little bit, right? This is the attitude that would build a commercial fishing enterprise. And now here's mom pushing her boys to excel. And I really wish I knew whose idea this was. I like to think it was hers, but maybe said, Mama, would, would you talk to Jesus for me? <laughs> Remember, the disciples were very young. These guys were not old, old sages yet. They were young men. And I want to make it clear, she did not do anything wrong here. 
The Bible does not condemn her for this. She wanted what was best for her children. She wanted her children to be great in the kingdom of God. That is an excellent thing for a mother to desire for her children. You can say that is the best thing for a mother to desire, that her children are great in the kingdom of God. The point that Jesus made was that they did not understand the price of what it would cost to be great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, are you, you prepared for this? Because they didn't know about the cross at this point. Are you going to drink the cup that I've got to drink? This is the same cup that Jesus would pray in Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. But it didn't. He drank it down to the dregs. So he's saying, are you prepared to suffer and die like I'm going to suffer and die? They said, yes, we are. He goes, yeah, you will. You are going to suffer and die. After Jesus rose from the dead and the Spirit was poured out, the early church had an incredible honeymoon period where everything was going great. The church was growing. There were thousands, tens of thousands of Christians meeting in the temple daily to pray and then meeting in each other's houses the rest of the time. Until tragedy struck. Acts chapter 12 tells us this story, verses 1 and 2 of Acts 12. About that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church And then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. Can you imagine the horror for Salome at this point? I wonder if she was tempted to become disillusioned with this whole thing. The the lies that Satan would have put in her ears. You gave your whole life to Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead. He's the Messiah. He's doing all these miracles. But your son is the one who dies. Up to this point, there had been persecution. But it had been, if you remember from the book of Acts, Hellenistic Jews. So they were all Jewish. But the Hellenistic Jews were those who had adopted Greek culture. And then you had the Hebraic Jews, you could call them, who still maintained their Israelite culture. So the Hellenistic Jews had been persecuted, the Hellenistic Christians, I should say. But her son became the first apostle to die. And it was at the hand of Herod the king. I wonder if she had comforted herself, well, well, not my boys. The priests will protect my boys. They know James and John. Annas and Caiaphas, we've known them for a long time. And yeah, we're at odds now, but they're they're not going to do anything like that. But instead, it says that it pleased the Jews. Typically, when you see that that word Jews, it does refer to the whole nation, but specifically to the leaders of the Jews. So this woman, who knew these priests, her son was welcome in the house without even an invitation. These people are pleased at the death of her son. They're rejoicing at the death of her son. Meanwhile, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is going on. They're celebrating Passover. And the whole city is rejoicing and celebrating and singing, and she has to deal with the death of her son, James. And then Peter's arrested. But Peter gets set free. Do you remember that story? The angels went into the prison and opened up Peter while they were praying for him. I wonder if she was tempted to resent that. If she had to deal with some bitterness there. So Peter gets to go free, but not my son? Why does James have to be the first one to die? Meanwhile, John would stay alive. In fact, John is the only apostle who would die a natural death. But he traveled all over the world. I'm sure she worried. Especially because Revelation 1.9 tells us that he was arrested, he was tortured, he was exiled. And she had to live through all that. 
And I'm sure she was proud of her sons watching them fulfill what God had called them to do. But it would have tried the mother's soul to see her sons go through all this pain and even death. And we don't know what happened to her. We don't know if she was martyred. We don't know if she would live to see Jerusalem fall 40 years after the death of Jesus. Some of that might depend on her age, I suppose. But the children that she raised were a testimony to her faith and her character. You can tell a lot about a person by the children they they raise, can't you? And as John himself would say in 3 John 4, he would say, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And I'm sure that's something he learned from his mother as well. She had no greater joy than to see her sons walk in the truth. Yeah, they were, they were rich because of the business. Yeah, they were married and having kids. Yeah, they were healthy and doing well. But her greatest joy was to see that her children were walking in the truth. And that should be what all of us as parents and especially mothers aspire to. And I don't think I'm correcting anything. I'm just reminding us. Jesus had said to her when she said, Let my sons be great in your kingdom. He said, you have no idea what you're asking. Do you think when she saw Jesus on the cross, she began to realize what he had meant when he said, you will drink this cup? Do you think there was a pit in her stomach? It would have been hard enough to watch Jesus die and rise from the dead. But then as, as time went on and things began to get more dangerous, if she would remember Jesus saying, you're also going to drink the cup that I drank. And she has these images of the cross running through her mind and wondering what's going to happen to her sons. But she kept going. She is one of the finest examples of a godly mother we have in the entire Bible. And as I've said before, good examples of parenting in the Bible are kind of hard to come by, which is rather unfortunate. Because she understood what was most important for her sons. She wanted her sons to be great in God's kingdom, and she was willing to allow them to go through what they needed to in order to become so. She didn't just want them to be great in God's kingdom. She was willing to let them drink the cup that Jesus drank in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because we as parents all need to remember that our children are not ours ultimately. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whoever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. This is something that You see in the law of Moses, the firstborn was always dedicated to the Lord. If it was an animal, it would be sacrificed in the temple. If it was something like a a donkey or something that was useful for the farm or things like that, you could get it back, but you had to pay a price to redeem it. Same thing for your sons. If you had a firstborn son, you'd bring him to the temple or the tabernacle, as the case may be, and you had to pay the redemption price to get him back. The Lord does this for a couple reasons. One of which, as a reminder and a memorial to the firstborn who Pharaoh had killed in Egypt. The Lord said, I'm going to redeem the firstborn. And what the Lord did, instead of taking every firstborn into his service, he took the tribe of Levi and said, I'm going to have all the Levites and they will all serve me. The Lord puts a claim on our kids. And we must honor that. This applies to Every one of us, because Ephesians chapter 2 tells us God has works prepared beforehand that we must walk in. Your children have works prepared beforehand that they must walk in. And there are some times where God calls out specific people for specific tasks. Every miraculous birth in the Bible, God comes to the mother or the father or both and says, that kid is mine. 
I'm using him for my service. Isaac was this way. Jacob was this way. Joseph was this way. Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist. All three of those were to be Nazarites from birth. Not just Samson. We always think of Samson as the one with the long hair. So was Samuel. So was John the Baptist. Never shaved. Never touched a dead body. We're not supposed to approach a woman. We're never supposed to not, not just to not drink wine, but to not even eat grapes or raisins or things like that. For their whole lives. How would you like that, mom, to be raising a little boy and his hair is getting long and you want to cut it, but you say, I can't cut it. And then you remember because God has set him aside for his service. And you think to yourself, I wonder what that's going to mean what that's going to look like. He gets older and his beard begins to come in and dad, you really want to help him trim that thing up. And but then you remember, no, we can't do that. No razor is ever supposed to touch his hair or his beard because why? God has a claim on that kid's life. Jesus Christ, of course, was the ultimate example of this. And I think in Luke chapter two, Simeon, the, the prophet in the temple, gives a great description of what it means for a mother or a father, but it's Mother's Day, for a mother to have to give her child over to the Lord. This is Luke 2, 34 through 35, when they brought Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So he says, this kid that you're holding right there, is going to be the one that causes the rise and fall of many. He's going to be opposed. And the thoughts of people are going to be exposed because of him. And he says, and a sword's going to pierce through your own heart. So yes, Jesus was nailed to the cross and was crucified and, and died. But Mary was there watching. And a sword was piercing her own heart as she watched her little boy be crucified. Same thing for Salome and James and John. This is the grief of all mothers who desire their children to serve the Lord. Because when you give your child over to Jesus, sometimes Jesus is going to put them in a place that is not where we would want our kids to be. As we watch our sons or our daughters struggle, as the Lord takes that promising young man and sends him over to be a missionary somewhere where no one's ever going to know his name. Or that young lady who is so beautiful and all, all the boys love her and she's, you just know she's going to give you a bunch of grandchildren someday. But she says, you know, the Lord has, has called me to put that aside because there are people around the world that need my help. Or watching your kid who has maybe been successful and then he comes to you and says, God's calling me into the ministry and I'm going to have to give up the business. What about money? I don't know where the money's going to come from. God's going to have to provide it. Salome watched Jesus die on the cross, and that is what it means to give your kids to the Lord. And it's a, it's a sad and it's a tragic thing. That's the curse of sin that we are struggling against. That is what we are fighting against. But the greater tragedy would be to try to hold on to your sons or daughters and keep them from walking the path that God has carved out for them. Might have been a temptation for Salome to keep her sons from following Jesus. Don't you know that your father's hearing some of the talk coming from that priest? They're going to kill him. And if you're associated with him, they're going to kill you too. So you're coming home. I'm not putting up with this anymore. But she didn't do that. Because that would have been a greater tragedy, wouldn't it? But unfortunately, as parents, we can fall into the trap and we can do this for our kids. We can say, you're absolutely not going into ministry. How are you going to provide for yourself? You're absolutely not going to go around the world. What happens if you get over there and you get sick and you die? I've seen it over and over and over again that well-meaning, well-intentioned parents 
can take the calling that God has placed on their child's life and they can totally deflate it by their actions and by their attitude. I just want what's best for them. But do you want what's best for them? Because the best thing for them is to be in the will of God so that when they come into the kingdom, they will be great and not standing with those who God had something planned for, but he was forced to give it to somebody else because they didn't step up to do it. Matthew 10, 37 through 39. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Hear this now. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Let's add to that. He who does not allow his son or daughter to take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Are we reminding our kids? Yes, you go out there and you make the best of your life that you can. But you need to remember that if you find your life and lose your soul, it hasn't gained you anything. It's the great instinct of mothers and fathers, but mothers to protect their children. We've described it this way before, that fathers and mothers are, are a push-pull. Dad's the pusher. Dad is, come on, go, jump off, you'll be fine, it'll be okay. If you scrape your knee, rub some dirt in it, and keep on going. Moms are the pull. No, 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 not yet. Hang back. And obviously, it, it can vary, but that's how it's been in my house anyway. I'm the one telling Micah, yeah, go ahead, go for it, try it, why not? He can't do that. Don't let him do that. Don't let him try that. And over time, you, you, between the two of you, you arrive at something that, that works, right? But that instinct cannot be allowed to keep our children from suffering for the name of Jesus, especially as times get tough, especially if persecution increases. We've got to be teaching our children, you must be prepared to die for the name of Jesus. What must it have been like in, in times past or even times present where there are persecution and the threat of death hanging over people's heads or the threat of the gulag or the concentration camp or whatever it is? How must it be tempting to be able to tell your kids, don't tell them you're a Christian. If they ask you if you're a Christian, say no. Just, and we'll get out of there and it'll be okay. But we can't do that because that's the denial of Christ. That's what Peter did. You have to be able to tell your children, if they come to you and they hold up a gun and they say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? You've got to stand up and say, yes, I do. You cannot be afraid. You must make that good testimony. And then if anything happens to us, don't you forget that waiting on the other side is the glory of Jesus Christ. And we will receive the crown of righteousness and the crown of life that Jesus promised. Oh, that sounds so great when nothing's happening, but when you're in the moment, the temptation comes. Which is why we must train ourselves through the little steps now, so that when the big moment comes, our kids are ready for that. Salome knew there was nothing more important than for her children to walk in the truth and to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And there are three things that she did. If you want to take three application points home, here you go. Number one, she encouraged her sons to follow the call of Jesus. She helped and ministered to them. She did not try to convince them to come home and make a real life for themselves. This wasn't their gap year where they go backpack across Nepal, but now you've got to come home and you've got you to settle down. No, she encouraged her sons to follow the call of Jesus. Parents, when your children grow up and they say things like, I think God might be calling me to preach, or to be a worship minister, or to be a missionary, or to marry one of those things. Encourage them to do that. Encourage them to seek the Lord and find out, but encourage them. And I can tell you, I, I'm a pastor, and my life is fine, but it is not what it could have been. I, I like to joke about my friend Stephen, who I don't know if he's watching, but if he is, I love you, Stephen, who, uh, 
when I was at college and I began, I started as an electrical engineering major, and he's like, I don't know what I want to study. Like, well, just take engineering with me, man. He goes, okay, yeah, whatever. We're 18 years old, picking classes, and he takes an engineering class with me for giggles because he had no idea what he wanted to do. He ended up finishing that degree, going on and getting a master's degree in cybersecurity, and now he is doing very well for himself. And so I like to tease him and say, you know, some of that's mine because I'm the one that told you to take this, right? And I could look at that and, and I could say, you know what, if I had stuck with that, I could have been doing all the things that he's doing. He's traveling and he's, he's got money and he's got all these exciting things that he does and these projects he works on. And, you know, when I was driving that junk truck, it was hard for me to think about that. And it's, it sounds, you know, funny now. But I'm sitting there in traffic in a big old smelly pile of garbage behind me and I smell like landfill and I'm sitting there waiting and it says I'm going to be home in 48 minutes even though I'm only 10 minutes away from the house. And then I get a call from him and I'm talking to him, man, that's so great. And then I hang up the phone and I'm like, what am I doing here? I, I, those were tough moments for me. And I kept going because I knew that God had called me. But if I had then called my father or my mother and said, mom, dad, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. If they had been said, well, you know what, uh, just come home. Why don't you just quit? You know, you gave it a try. It's not working. Just, just quit. That would have been unthinkable. And I never got to that place. But I know that my parents who are godly would have told me, you've got to keep going. If God, this is what they'll say. If God told you to do it, you better do it. Encourage your children to follow the call of Jesus. And number two, she pushed her children to the fullest commitment possible. She didn't just say follow Jesus. She said, if you're going to follow Jesus, you better be number one and number two. I don't care which one of you is right hand and left hand, but you better be up there. Now, we'll do this with other things, won't we? Baseball, right? You can play baseball. If you play, you better practice and you better be good. If you're going to play that guitar, you better practice that guitar. Amen. Right? Whatever it is, we push our kids to the fullest commitment possible. You're in school, you're going to study. You're going to work hard. You're going to do whatever it takes to be the best. Parents will say things like, when you're out of my house, you can do whatever you want. But while you're here, you're going to give it everything you've got. But we should do that same thing with the Lord. For some reason, when it comes to the things of God, oh, I don't want to push him. That's where you need to push him. You're living in my house, you're going to read that Bible. It's boring. I don't care. Read it until it's interesting for you. I said to Micah one time, he was like four or five, so he had no idea what I was talking about. But he said, but it's boring. I said, Micah, that book has overturned empires and changed the entire world and brought our family out of poverty and sin. Read it. He goes, what? You know, he doesn't know. But you push them, push them to, to go for it. Kid, if you're going to go to seminary, you better be the best in that seminary. If you're going to go plant a church, you better plant the church. Don't give it half effort. Amen. If you're going to get out there and be a worship leader, you better take the time to practice, learn the songs, write new songs, and stay on your knees in prayer. Don't, don't do this halfway thing. Well, keep the fallback just in case. Push them to the fullest commitment possible. They might not want to be in ministry, but they're going to follow Jesus, aren't they? What do, you, what do you mean you're not in church today? I don't care if you're not living at my house. You need to go to church. If you don't go to church, then you're going to get eaten alive by the wolves of Satan. Push your children to the fullest commitment possible. And number three, as I've been saying, she allowed them to fulfill their destiny in Christ without harassing them, without trying to keep them from suffering. Because she knew that true greatness for her sons would be found in heaven. Every mother wants her son to be, as we might say, it's an old-fashioned word, but glorious in life. 
That's old-fashioned. You go out and you win glory in battle, or you win glory through what you do. We use other terms, but this is what parents want for their kids. That's a noble thing. You want your kids to be more successful than you, to have a better marriage than you, to be a better parent than you. You want all those things. Those are good. But the most important thing is to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And that's a different path to walk. It's a narrow road that not many find. It's a hard path. Jesus describes it as taking up your cross to go and die. Paul talks about being crucified with Christ. He says, I die daily. So when we commit our children to the Lord, when we, we hold them up on their babies, and we pray that God has his hand on their life, we've got to allow them to do what God's called them to do. And not to give them an out when they call and say, should I continue? The answer is yes, you must. Mom, Dad, I don't think this, this marriage is working. I'm just tired. No, you stick it out because the Lord hates divorce. Mom, Dad, I, I've been trying to make time for, for church, but you know, just with work and with, with the kids and their stuff, I just don't know if we're having time. Say, no, you must continue. You must keep going. We cannot allow them to go halfway or to ignore the call of Christ or to quit when it gets tough. We don't let them do that for anything else. Basketball is hard. Well, it's halfway through the season. You made a commitment, so you're going to finish it out. I'll walk with Jesus is just getting hard. Well, you made a lifelong commitment, so you better stick it out. I watched you get baptized. You're going to finish this out. Amen. And the hardest part of being a parent is you can't do it for them, right? Sometimes you wish you could. You wish you could do it for them. You wish you could evangelize for them or parent for them. <laughs> Sometimes we wish we could read their Bibles for them or minister for them, but you can't but you can ensure that they have everything that they need to succeed. And that starts by placing the Lord and his priorities as your priorities in your house. That your kids know that these other things are important, but the most important thing is the Lord. And that starts when they're real little, with silly little things like, I was in the car with Colt and Micah yesterday, and I said, you guys are my best friends. Micah says, thank you. Colton says, God is supposed to be your best friend. <laughs> And I was like, you know what, Colt, you're right. That is right. He's four. But as he gets older, that same attitude needs to be applied. Well, this, this is just the passion of my life. Well, that's great, but isn't, isn't Christ supposed to be the passion of your life? This is what I've been called to do. I thought you were called to this. I thought you were called to that. Why are you stopping? Well, I'm just tired. You can't stop when you get tired. That's when you've got to keep going. We don't stop in the gym when we get tired. If we do, we never, we never grow. We never get faster. We never get stronger. Amen. Well, God wouldn't want me to do it if it was hard. That is not what the Bible says. <laughs> Finding that ministry and life as a Christian is difficult is not a sign that God doesn't want you to keep going. You've also got an adversary who hates you and wants to make it difficult for you. The greatest crown for a mother is not going to be that her children are raised as kind, loving people. Not that they've got more money and more stuff in a bigger house. Not even that they raise a great family of their own. The greatest crown for a mother will be to see her children glorified in the Lord's kingdom on that final day. Which is why Salome is honored in God's word because she raised James and John and when the time came to follow Jesus, she did not hinder them. This is why we venerate motherhood in the church. Because mothers are those first trainers who prepare champions of the faith. Every man of God that the Lord ever raised up had a mother who taught him the ABCs of Christianity at, at a young age. 
Far be it from us in the church ever to denigrate moms. Say that it's, it's a cop-out because you can't do anything else, so you're just going to stay at home and be lazy. Or that it's a shortcut. If we want to see the world transformed in a glorious revival, which we do, we need these kind of true feisty mothers like Salome who prepare their kids for the battle and then send them off to fight. Not who raise soldiers and say, but you, you just stay home in your uniform. It looks really nice to stay here. No, I've got to go and fight in the battle. Well, I didn't raise you to do that, but you raised me to be a soldier. Same thing when you're following Jesus. I've got to get out there. I've got to do what God called me to do. No, you stay here. Too dangerous out there. But this is what you raised me to be, a soldier in the Lord's army, remember? Lucky for us in Calvary Chapel, we have, we have such women here Amen. who are blessed of the Lord, blessed by us here. And this is not given this morning as a corrective. It's given as a reminder and an encouragement and an exhortation. As Proverbs 31 says, we'll close with these verses. Proverbs 31, 27 through 30. Talking about the virtuous woman, we could say the virtuous mother. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. And he praises her saying, many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised.